We invite our children to be dismissed for their time and experience of worship as the rest of us bow and pray for a moment. Amidst the beauty of the rituals, may the power of the living word come and touch people at the point of their need this day. We pray in the name of Christ, the living word. Amen. Some months ago, I passed a church marquee, which had these words out on the letters. You ask for a sign, question mark, here it is. I didn't think it was very funny either. In fact, we are always looking for signs, I think. We're always looking for clues and cues, some way to clarify and assure us that we're on the right path, or at least we're looking for the right path, something that will reveal to us what is not otherwise apparent in our everyday and ordinary lives. Maybe that's what brought you here this morning. Our lesson from, for this second Sunday in Epiphany comes from the Gospel of John, a gospel written differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It begins philosophically and poetically with the words of uh, beginnings, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Tremendous, profound thoughts. John moves on to begin the action, the baptism of Jesus, and then moves into the practicalities of calling the disciples and setting the stage. But now we're at the point where people are asking, who is this guy? Who, who, what is this? Chapter 2 begins this way. On the third day, And those of us who have heard this story before know that already in the narrative there is a clue, a sign, if you will. For on the third day, Jesus rose from death to life. So already we have a little clue that something life-giving, something out of the ordinary is about to happen. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, a small town now now forgotten from the maps of history, but near Nazareth where Jesus was raised. So Jesus and his disciples are invited. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. Perhaps they knew the bride or the groom, but they're there to celebrate. John reports that the wine gave out. Maybe this was poor planning. Maybe this was Jesus and the disciples getting a little too excited during the reception. But for whatever reason, the wine gives out and the mother gets involved. Now let me pause here to say that I know that my Jewish friends think they have the corner on pushy mothers, but I would protest. Hi, Mom. Um, (laughs) Mary says to him, they need more wine. Translation, fix it. Make it right. Jesus' response is kind of a, an interesting 
family exchange, a kind of tug with his mother. Uh, Is this our business? Should we be involved in this? And then this cryptic and theological line is thrown in. My hour, my time has not come. Now is not the time for me to interject myself into history. I surely need some bigger issue, some bigger problem than this kind of first world embarrassment of wine running out at a reception. And Mary, being the mother that she is, ignores Jesus. She refuses to take no for an answer. She turns to the servants and said, he's going to do it. Get things ready. And perhaps it's um, my own projection in wondering if Jesus is maybe a little bit exasperated and resigned when he turns to them and say, fill up the jars with water. So here sit the jugs filled to the brim with water. Some 150 gallons of water, no small amount, no small effort for those days. They're sloshed into the room, they sit, they settle, they wait. And John says that Jesus does not say a prayer, does not enact some ritual, makes no explanation. He doesn't touch the water. He doesn't touch the jars. He doesn't fill the pots. He doesn't dip the water. He doesn't taste the water. Because you know his time, his hour, has not yet come. And yet, something happens. From the ordinary comes the extraordinary. It's as if time collapses, speeds up somehow, and the process of turning water into wine, which may take months or years, happens in one instant. And not just water to wine, but this extravagance of water to wine. Six 25-gallon jars transformed, to, transformed into wine when maybe one jar would have done. There's enough wine here to let this party go on for a long, long time. So what does this mean? It's not, of course, about overindulgence. It's not about trying to quench that thirst that ends up leaving us hungrier and thirstier than we were at the start Someone noted that drunkenness is a metaphor for the way that we dull our physical and spiritual perceptions and that there's lots of wine out there in many different forms with the power to hinder us on our spiritual path. No, this isn't about overindulgence. This is, John tells us, a sign. A sign. It's a moment to clarify and concretize and give us a clue and a cue about the dream of God that is being revealed in Jesus, that it has to do with life and it has to do with joy and it has to do with extravagance of the finest gifts and that there's enough of it for every one of us, just like that water. 
Our ordinary lives can be drawn by this one who later called himself the vine, can be drawn into him and sweetened and taken in and then crushed and fermented to produce the fullness of life for the world around us. In other words, that point at which we follow him and risk ourselves and love and honor and cherish and relate to one another and harmonize with each other and wait to find our purpose, our reason for being born, Morgan's reason for being born into this world to find that full life that God wants. I'm not talking about church here. I'm talking about your life. Long ago, one of the early church fathers, by the name of Irenaeus, said it this way. The glory of God is humanity, you and me, fully alive, fully into our purpose and our joy in living I know the commercials tell us it's going to be found in all other ways and all other means. Nest says it's going to be when we take that plunge and drink their product. Chili's Restaurant says if you'll just come with your friends and have some, some baby back ribs, you will be the happiest person in the world. Buick says if you'll drive their car, it will be an amazing experience for you. And Coors Beer says just wait for the love train to come and it will make your life so right. But Jesus comes along and says humanity, when it experiences and sees and tastes this extraordinary life that's always here. It's right here for us to awaken to that which is so easily missed. This life, this beautiful life, this love, this eternal love that never fails. John notes that this is the first sign. He notes that it happens at a wedding. I've been a pastor for 34 years now. When I was a new pastor in 1979, I bought a book to record all the weddings and funerals I've done. I've only got one page left in the book. I guess I'll have to retire then uh, or get a new book. I've done lots of weddings. I was here for Amanda and Eric's when I said, you may kiss the bride. He got down on one knee to kiss his short wife. <laughs> it was a sweet, sweet moment. Weddings are the, are the occasion for all kinds of stories. Puking grooms and feigning brides and <laughs> wardrobe malfunctions and cues missed and kids gone wild and organ pipes sticking and on through the way. But in and, in and amidst all of the ritual of the wedding ceremony. There's this extraordinary presence that is right there in the midst of the ordinary. Maybe Mary knew this is the perfect time for your hour to come. This is exactly the moment. I'll take just a moment of personal privilege to say that 25 years ago this Wednesday, I got to be in a different place at a wedding. I was the groom. 
And I stood in that moment and felt the fullness of love that makes life rich and beautiful, that creates that moment of hope and synergy and cooperation and happiness that the work of love is real and tactile and that you and I can be part of it. Mary knew. The wedding is the perfect time for the hour to come when God's glory can be revealed. And I don't know that she could predict what Jesus' story would be from there. Perhaps she didn't know that it would include times of fear and jealousy and power plays and denials and betrayals. This ominous story that mirrors the world that we live in where people lie and cheat and steal and hurt. But these things do not define life. These things do not define life. The first sign when the glory of Christ was revealed was at a time of joy, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's like the creation story. Sure, there's the part about breaking fellowship with God, about Adam and Eve turning on each other and blaming one another and that separation But we're reminded again and again that before there was original sin, there was original goodness. That God looked on creation and said, this is good. This is very, very good. In my work as a pastor, I hear people speak of this goodness who have no business speaking this way at all. I talk to addicts who are so far from home who have lost everything, and yet they find faith. They find joy. They find purpose in their life. They have no business talking about happiness, but they're exceedingly happy. I talk to members of the LGBT community who are denied their basic civil rights, even including marriage, who are taunted and rejected by their families, and yet they show up and are living in the joy. It's amazing. I find people in hospital beds whose health is waning, who nonetheless can speak of God's goodness, of the, of the taste of new wine on their lips. And the cynical can doubt and deny. But faith sees that it is deeply true. The first sign of God The first revealing of God's glory is in and amidst the joy. Life's joy. And not just for the wedding party. The servant gets to participate in it. The servant who lugs in the water and serves it up can say, I was there. I played a role. The chief steward, the one who said, man, this is... This is not just trash can drink. This is this is the real deal. Can say, I was there. The waiters can say, we dispense the gift. Mary can say, mother knows best. And the guests can all say, most people serve the best wine first. You've saved the best for last. This is the nature in the kingdom of God. In the Brothers Karamazov, that great Russian novel, Father Zosima is an old priest who's lived his life inside the kingdom of God, and now he's dead. His body lies in a coffin in the monastery. The priest is 
holding vigil over him, reading from John chapter 2, the story of the wedding at Cana. When Alyosha, the young man who loved Father Zosima, comes in to kneel and pray. But in his exhaustion, he falls asleep. And he begins to dream. And he dreams of being at that wedding. He sees the bride and the groom and the parents. He sees Jesus and the disciples and Mary. They're, they're all there together. And then the feast seems to expand until Alyosha himself is there at the wedding. And then there's an old man who rises from the table and comes to him. And he realizes it's his father Zosima. Alive again, not in the coffin, but with the wedding party, who comes to him and says, Why are you hidden here? Come be with us. You come join us too in this merrymaking and drinking of the new wine, the new wine of great, great joy. And then he points to Jesus and says, Look, he's changing the water into wine and he's expecting more guests, new guests. He's calling new ones ever and always. And forever. We're all invited into this life of joy for all of us, not just the favored few. So that when you think, what about all those people out there who don't have the joy? What about those out there who don't even have a jar with water in it, much less wine? And here I think of young men in the forest just outside of the city of Ujda in Morocco, or I think of the children here in the city of Louisville for whom a snow day is not a fun day, but a day with no breakfast or lunch. And here's the good news. You and I, together as the church, we get to play the part of Mary to call upon the Holy One to say, the hour has come. Let us be a part. You and I get to play the role of the servants to take this wine of great joy out into the world. We believe it. We've tasted it. We've experienced this joy that God wants for all of God's children. It's not here in its fullness. We've got a long, long way to go. And yet, it's here. Tomorrow we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. On the night before his assassination, he was preaching in a church. And I'm sure you've heard parts of that wonderful sermon. Where at the end, King says, God has allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. And I've looked over to the other side and I've seen the promised land. I may not be able to get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. We're not living into that promised land yet, but we've tasted it. We've seen it. We've lived into it enough that we're called, sign me up, to be part of a church who is so liberated by the sacred libation that we glimpse it and we believe it. We taste it and we see it and we say yes to it. And we invite all we can to come and taste, see, 
Let's pray together. God who is not done, may we this day rekindle the taste of the wine of the kingdom in our own lips. May we find the joy, the purpose that you want for all of your followers. May Highland this day be a community of great joy, even as we walk into some challenging months. May joy be our agenda. And may we be about the work of making sure that everyone is served this new wine, that the kingdom and the power and the glory that we pray about coming forever and ever is available to all, all of your children. Until that day, keep us faithful to you. This we pray in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.